Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. My friends, I want to take a quick moment to give you a special invitation. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, what would you say to joining me live once a month? And not just joining me, but hundreds of other like-minded Live Inspired community members. And what if you could do it from the comfort of your own home? My friends, Live Inspired in Studio with John O'Leary is exactly this, a gathering of our Live Inspired community members once a month for a live inspirational webcast. Let's do life together. Registration for in-studio only happens twice a year. And here's a secret, it's opening soon. Don't miss it. Sign up right now. Be one of the very first to know when Live Inspired in-studio registration opens. You can go right now, check it out. It's at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio. One more time, it's johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary, and welcome to Live Inspired. My favorite aspect of being a speaker is not actually the time that I share on stage with a bright light shining on me. No, it's actually the time that follows when the light fades, the mics are turned off, I move from the front of the room to the back, and then I have the honor, the absolute honor of not only meeting people and signing books, but of hearing their story, their struggles, their trauma, ultimately their life. From deadly school shootings, terrorist bombings, sexual assault to devastating hurricanes, crushing diagnosis and life-altering financial challenges, we live, we work, we operate in a tumultuous age. It turns out though that we all get burned in life just to different degrees and in different ways. That's why I am so excited about our guest today. Dr. Laurie Nadell is a journalist and a psycho- psychologist who specializes in acute stress. As a journalist who covers tragedies around the world, Dr. Nadell saw the urgent need to help people whose lives were shattered by violence. As a therapist, she created emotional first aid tools to help calm acute stress reactions after catastrophes and led a program for teenagers whose fathers were killed during the September 11th attacks. But it was when her own home was destroyed by Hurricane Sandy in 2012 that she discovered the five gifts. We're going to come back to that one. The five gifts that helped rebuild her life. My friends, I ask you now to do this. Open wide your hearts and your minds. Open up your journals and prepare to wake up from accidental living. It's time to live inspired with our newest friend, Laurie Nadell. Dr. Laurie, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. John, thank you so much. I'm so honored to be your guest on the show. Oh, gosh. Well, we are floored and flattered to have you. And for those who are somehow unfamiliar with the name Dr. Laurie Nadell, give us a snapshot about the work you do today. Uh, the, the work that I do today that I've been doing for the last 30 years is uh, working with uh, individuals and groups uh, where there has been some kind of a disaster or catastrophic event. Um, I uh, started uh, my, my practice. I changed careers transition from journalism um, into psychology in the uh, late 80s, early 1990s, 
and uh, I, I work in New York and also give workshops uh, different places around the country that are connected to how, how the five gifts and emotional first aid tools can help people uh, who are recovering from disasters. Well, it's, it's a fascinating topic that you cover today. And sadly, your work is required and desperately needed now, maybe than ever before. But rather than talking about today and the work that you do and the work that you are doing going forward, I wanted to back all the way up to your childhood, to where the story began, and then move us forward to the work that you're doing. So why don't you tell us where you grew up and what life was like for a little Laurie Nadell as a child? Well, it's funny you should mention that as I'm, I'm thinking of... Uh, uh, I have an image of the street in front of our house. We grew up, uh, my, my brother Eric and I grew up in a house uh, with our grandparents lived upstairs and we lived on the ground floor. And uh, we had about 40 kids who were within, I would say, four years uh, of uh, our ages. Mm. And uh, there was like a big tribe of kids, uh, mostly boys, but quite a few girls. And we used, to, we used to hang out in the middle of the street. We would roller skate. We would use chalk on the sidewalks. Uh, we played uh, stew ball and, uh, and uh, stick ball and uh, uh, roller skated, learned to roller skate, played marbles and little drainage, little dra- drains. They had French drains mm-hmm. in the driveways, and we would play games of marbles, you know, up and down the driveway. So, um, you know, it was an urban childhood. Um, it was an urban childhood before Sesame Street made urban mm-hmm. childhoods kind of chic. And uh, I always wondered what it would be like to be normal like Dick and Jane and live in the country. Because if you remember, the books that we, we used to learn how to read from were about uh, his brother and sister named Dick and Jane, and they lived on a farm with their family somewhere in the middle of America. And so uh, it was funny because uh, even though it was a very urban environment, um, up to this day, uh, I have a whole family of like friends who are like my cousins who I grew up with, and we all stay in touch with each other. So it was pretty cool. You, you mentioned the 40. You also mentioned a brother. Is he older or younger than you? Uh, my brother, Eric Nadell, is uh, younger than me. He's three years younger than me. And uh, as we touched base on before, he's the voice of the Texas Rangers. And uh, he was also uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yes in Cooperstown, I think 2014. Well, I have a feeling our conversation may slip toward baseball as we go deeper (laughs) down the path. But before we go too deep into baseball, and we're we're coming, so you baseball fans, stay tuned. Lori, talk about some of your influences growing up. Talk about your mom and dad. Uh, Well, we, we, um, it's interesting, we we actually grew up in an extended family. Uh, We, our parents had a very, very strong work ethic and uh, I still remember when uh, when I was sent to a summer camp where there were a lot of uh, very snobby I guess, uh, girls who came from uh, wealthier families. Uh, they made they made fun of me because uh, our family didn't have a Cadillac, and my dad, you know, very proudly drove a refurbished 1952 Ford with a horse on the hood, mm-hmm. <laughs> like a Pegasus horse. And, uh, and I thought you made a Mustang, me. and I'm like, well, he should have driven that proudly. Well, it was it was way before a Mustang. I mean, we're talking about like the nineteen, yeah. you know, nineteen fifties, and uh, and it was very harsh. I mean, I was I was teased, I was shunned, I was bullied, and um, and 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 one of the things that they kept saying is, "Your family doesn't even have a Cadillac," and I would cry. And my dad taught me at that point, and I think it was like like ten years old. He said, "Never let anybody judge you for what kind of car you drive." Hmm. 
that you drive the kind of car that that works for you, that makes sense for you. And um, you can't judge people by how much money they have or what kind of car they're driving. And um, more and more, uh, as I grow up, and especially you know, I see like, a lot of worshiping of cars kind of around me, and I, I just remember my dad's word, it's a profound influence on me. Um, mm. Don't don't be intimidated by somebody's opinion of your car. You know, it doesn't define the worth of who you are as a human being. So, um, you know, we, we basically were taught, you know, very, you know, very decent, uh, you know, very decent values. Um, honesty was very important. Hard work was very important. And, uh, and being kind was also very important in our family. You uh, and I spoke ahead of time and you talked about your dad being the Dr. Nadell. So he's, mm-hmm. a, he's a doctor. Talk about what kind of work he did. My dad was a dentist, and um, he um, it, it was very. He was he was loved by by very 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 many people. Uh, he was extremely kind. He was very fair with people. Um, he went out of his way to kind of make his work affordable for people. Uh, and um, you know, one of the things that I remember was he he had a hobby of uh, they used to make. Uh, uh, crowns and false teeth using something called the lost wax process. And so he learned how to carve wax and how to make wax impressions. And so he used to create gold jewelry design and, mm-hmm. and uh, cast, uh, have, have the jewelry cast um, in the same place where, where they would make the molds for the crowns and the teeth. That he was really quite an artist. Uh, and, and we have some of his pieces still in the family. It's really extraordinary to see him work. And your mother, what, what kind of work did she do? What, what did you learn from your mother? Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, she, was very, she was very focused on uh, the immediate family. She wasn't really exposed uh, to light very much. And, um, you know, she also, she, honesty was very, very important. Uh, hard work was very important. Um, and, and I had kind of had more conflict with my mom because... Um, you know, my my mom is, was one of these. She's very logical and very organized. And since I I since I started you know, working uh, with the Myers Briggs, which is a personality type mm-hmm. um, inventory, I now understand that um, people who are very logical and organized believe that they're morally superior to those of us who are a little messier and not so well organized and maybe not so logical. So there was a lot of friction around that because my basic personality was, I guess, just a little bit more, um, uh, I wouldn't say chaotic, but it, it was it was less linear. Yes. And she didn't understand. I, I was kind of like the messy, creative kid, always had ink on her hands. I still do. And, uh, you know, my, my room was never quite neat and organized the way she liked it. So, there, you know, and it did teach me, uh, she did teach me to uh, be neater and to pay more attention to details. And I think that that was also a good life skill. Well, and I have a feeling we, we students also somehow end up teaching those who originally taught us. I would imagine you you softened her edges a little bit as, as you grew together. Um, I would hope so. Um, I, I remember a very funny um, incident. My my husband, who was extremely, you know, is a perceiver, so he was he was like the king of procrastinators. And my mother asked him to paint the fence uh, of the railing in front of the house, and um, and he called and he said, "What should I do?" And I said, "Well, 
you know, she's very organized and you like to procrastinate, so you'll say yes and then you won't do it in the time frame that she wants. And so she's going to start calling me and complaining <laughs> about you and then you're going to complain about me and I'm going to be caught in the middle. So I would say, please say no at the beginning. And then she called me and I told her the same thing. I said, so please don't ask him because I'm going to get caught in the middle. And of course, she asked him to paint the railing and he said yes. <laughs> I was just laughing my head off because they were both saying it was my fault. And I said, hey, I you, warned you, know you guys. Ahead of time. <laughs> I warned you guys because they had very different styles about of managing time. And as I got older, I was able to kind of see that and be able to kind of inject some humor into uh, you know what was was based just just two different orientations towards task management and time management. It's very funny, Doctor Laurie. When did you first sense the calling to begin doing what you do today? It's uh, it's a gift that you give us in the community who follow you. So t- talk about that journey toward discovering. You know, it's an interesting question because as I started writing the book, and I I. Uh, one of the things that happened was I started having dreams of the very first stories that I worked on when I was a TV news writer in London. That was my first job uh, coming out of college. I was working for an organization that's now Reuters Television. It was a TV news agency. And it was the time of Vietnam. It was the time of the Biafran War. And we were seeing all these these really haunting um, images on on our black and white televisions at the time of babies who were starving, and uh, you know Vietnam. You would see you know mothers uh, you know on fire, as you can undoubtedly relate to more than anybody else, um, carrying their babies you know to safety. And um, you see people standing in line for a cup of rice, and you know you'd hear the explosions of Vietnam and. And I, I, when I first started, I used to have dreams at night. It went on for years where I would see the outtakes. I would see the film that was discarded onto the cutting room floor mm-hmm. because the images were considered um, not dramatic enough or not compelling enough. And so I used to dream about the rejects. And it used to really, really bother me. Because when I tried to discuss it, you know, with somebody, when I would walk into work, they'd say, hey, does anybody have these dreams? And everybody would look at me like, you know, like I was crazy. Mm-hmm. So I, I stopped talking about it from time to time. It would come up um, if there was a particularly bad, um, you know, bombing attack, for example, something, some flare-up in the Middle East. Um, I think that a lot of us were having dreams but um, whenever I would bring it up, they would just kind of, people would look at me and then, you know, they'd make eye contact and look away. Mm-hmm. So I would say that, you know, as I was uh, working at CBS, which was my last full-time news job for in the late 1970s through 1987, um, after the birth of my daughter in 85, um, it really became unbearable for me to uh, watch um, images of people being hurt especially children, but anybody being hurt. I was much more aware that that person lying on the ground is somebody's child. And it's it's really motherhood really changed me in terms of opening up this feeling of compassion for anybody who is hurt. And so that's when I began to really, it didn't have like a clear map for myself, mm-hmm. but a, a kind of general blueprint of that calling, you know, began to take shape, I would say in the late 80s. Well, it's, it's one thing to be moved by what you see or feel or dream. Uh, it's another entirely different thing, though, to actually take action on it, to leave a career and to begin a new journey. 
So what was the compelling force eventually that calls you completely away from, you know, CBS and Reuters into a new career path, into a new journey? Well, I mean, to be honest, I burned out uh, covering the Iran-Contra hearings. Um, I was, you know, I was, I guess I still am kind of a recovering workaholic, only I haven't really recovered. (laughs) So uh, I I came down with with an illness that was a uh, kind of, it's a version of an Epstein-Barr kind of virus, and I was basically bedridden for a few years. And while I was on uh, disability, the job was eliminated. All all of the writers, uh, writers guild jobs in that shop were eliminated, uh, so management could save money. And uh, so, uh, so basically, my, my job was terminated. They offered me a couple of other positions, but um, I knew that my health was shaky and that the um, you know the the long hours, the unpredictable schedule was was no longer something that I could do physically. It was just it was just too destabilizing for me. And so um, I I was writing at the time. I was doing a lot of freelance writing, and I wrote this book called Sixth Sense, which uh, got me very involved in the study of how our intuition is a way that we gather information about the world, and it comes to us very suddenly in a flash of insight, in a dream, in a, with an inner voice, with a feeling in our body. And uh, I've interviewed 110 people for that book on hunches, gut feelings, intuition, and it really kind of springboarded me into uh, getting a master's and a PhD in uh, psychology. So that book, and I mean, you're, you're almost underselling the impact of that book. It, it went on to be a monster success. When you were writing this, did you have any vision of the amount of copies being sold and then read as what eventually happened? I, I had I had no idea, honestly. I mean, I, I kind of felt coming out of that illness and, and beginning, you know, to going back to school at the same time as I was writing, you know, or right after I'd written Sixth Sense, I think I was working on another book right afterwards, um, you know, being freelance and um, and having a child and my marriage at the time was kind of unraveling. And so I just kind of felt that everything I was doing was, was focused on getting myself to a place where um, I would be in a position to support you know, my kid. And um, so it was kind of more of a survival thing. And, and what has amazed me about Sixth Sense, um, in addition to so many people who've told me how it's absolutely changed their lives in terms of helping them to understand how they think and how they process and who they are. Um, The book was a four-time bestseller. It was featured on Oprah twice. But the most amazing thing is that it's still in print, Mm -hmm. and the first edition came out in 1990. And this book rocks on. It's great. It's a fascinating topic, and I uh, Mm -hmm. I wish we could go deeper and deeper into it, but I I do want to also talk about your most recent work, which heavily revolves around not only intuition, but challenges and tragedies and disasters. What, what, what attracted you, if you will, into that kind of work, into that focus? Well, there were two things that attracted me um, into that work. When I got my uh, doctorate, or after I got my doctorate in psychology, I decided to specialize in uh, post-traumatic stress and trauma because I uh, experienced it uh, after I, I was a reporter in Chile in uh, 1974 uh, during a military government, uh, after the military government had seized power. And uh, it was uh, it was, it was was extremely dangerous. Um, I may have been 
Uh, I probably was reckless, although I don't think of it as reckless now, but uh, I didn't think of it as reckless then. But I really think I, I must have given my guardian angels a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Here I was, a, a young, basically, you know, stringer or freelance reporter, uh, trying to find out how many people had disappeared um, since the military took over. And we, we knew that there were tens of thousands of people who had been taken into custody in the National Stadium and people had been executed in public and thousands of people were disappearing. And, um, and it, it, was, um, it was very dangerous. And the person who I was, one of the people I was interviewing informed on me uh, to the head of the Air Force, and I had to go into hiding and escape the country. And as a result of that experience, I did have uh, for about a year or two, if there was a loud noise out in the street at night, I would I would get out of bed and I would roll under the I would roll under the bed because um, you know I, I was like waiting right. for the machine guns to start. And that was uh, like a classic case of like post combat PTSD. Although I'm not in any way saying that what I experienced was like what a uh, service person, a military person experiences in in the middle of combat. Uh, but it it shook me up enough. Um, well, I did get help for it that I decided that I would like to learn um, a lot of techniques and specialize and focus in helping people who were suffering from that to be able to get relief. That's what kind of led me in that direction. You have become expert in it in uh, in numerous ways. One of the ways you become expert is not just to research it, but to live through it. Talk about September 11th, if, if you're open to it. Uh, September 11th, um, I, I was kind of more... I was, I was due to teach a course at uh, New York University School of Journalism, and the school uh, shut down. I mean, it was, it was uh, the school's like a mile or so north of uh, the World Trade Center. Um, it was really a time to kind of draw, you know, draw closer with my daughter and my mom. Uh, we, we sat in... Uh, my mom's apartment, and we could see, you know, the towers burning. And uh, my office at the time was it, was, it was about a mile, mile and a half north of the World Trade Center. And uh, it was really important for me to immediately reach out to the community of people who I knew who lived downtown and uh, clients who had worked with me over the years and to start uh, giving workshops and participating in uh, healing events that they had at the downtown community college and local YM and YWCAs. And so I was really working with uh, eyewitnesses uh, primarily, and there was no federal program to help somebody who had been standing in the street watching people, you know, throw themselves out of buildings or watching the world's tallest buildings get, you know, get vaporized Mm -hmm. or or listening to the sound. Uh, One of my clients uh, is blind and she described coming, you know, being caught up in this crowd of people uh, running north and hearing the sound in the background, uh, which is something we don't think about because we remember the images. Uh, so I was doing that work directly in my office, and then uh, uh, 2002, 2003, um, I was uh, I was hired to run a program for teenagers whose fathers were killed um, in on 9/11. Uh, I was also at the time reporting for the New York Times Long Island section, and did a series of articles on the psychological impact of 9/11 in the suburbs. So I, I was very much involved in. Um, how this horrific event was affecting so many, so many members of, of our community. You know, it, it, affect, it affected everybody. It's changed everybody, the world, absolutely. Yes. You, yes. you 
you focused in specifically with these teenage kids whose dads were no longer in their lives. And when you when you take on a group like this and you meet them where they are, what's the first step to even hear their stories and to begin making a recovery? I think for me, um, the thing that I was most aware of, and, and most of them, not all, but but a lot of the people who were drawn to uh, my program were, were young men. They were teenage boys. Um, they, they were, uh, for the most part, kids who had not spoken about what happened um, except to their mothers and only very, very briefly. And so um, the, my, my intuition at the beginning was that um, if they weren't forced to speak to each other, they would be more likely to keep showing up. And so I wanted to develop a program around activities that would let them connect with each other because as they became uh, more, as their friendships with each other deepened, then I felt that they would start to open up naturally. And and that is kind of what happened. It's like I, I was providing a place for them to get to connect with each other more than I was providing a, a formal setting for them to kind of share their feelings with the group. And the thing that, you know, I, I had uh, windsurfing clinics, surfing clinics, a lot of water sports around Long Island, fishing, um, seal watching, and then uh, the teams, uh, the New York Mets, Omar Minaya at the Mets and uh, Joe Torre at the Yankees, they, they made themselves available. They, um, they, they, um, set up opportunities for the kids to meet with some of the players, to watch batting practice. Um, they couldn't have been more supportive. And so uh, the kids who were Yankees fans, the kids who were Mets fans, they each formed like a little tribe. And right. uh, we, we were together for three baseball seasons. And after, I think, the first season, the younger boys started opening up to the older boys and talking about how they weren't doing as well at Little League because their dads weren't there to coach them and their dad used to go speak to their coach. And so the older kids uh, reached out and they started a program to coach the younger kids in baseball. And it was really, I think, one of the most inspiring and, and moving things I've, I've ever uh, been part of in my life. You know, you say this to me and it, it caught me off guard, actually. When you sit back and you stand back and you look back at that is. Could you imagine that this is going to become part of their healing process, that these older kids are going to become the teachers and the fathers to the younger ones? I, I never, you know, never in my wildest dreams had uh, expected that. And uh, it, it just, you know, even reading that, that part of the book, you know, where I write about it, I uh, always I, I always get a lump in my throat. And uh, I'm, I'm in touch, you know, off and on with a few of the kids. They've grown up. They have their own families. Um, you know, they've, they've certainly grown and one of the five gifts is growth. Uh, they, uh, each and every one of them who I, I still uh, connect with from time to time, uh, gives back in, uh, so many ways to their family and their community. Um, they really, a very inspiring, uh, inspiring group of, of young men and women. Um, uh, I was on a debriefing team. I was privileged to be on a critical incident debriefing team, um, after Parkland with uh, one of the rescue crews. And, you know, it, the, the sessions are confidential, but one of the things that I, I said, you know, towards the end of the session was that, you know, you'll be surprised, but these young people are going to do something extraordinary because that's what I saw 
working with kids after 9-11. I said, the, the, these kids whose lives have been defect, uh, affected are going to do something amazing and um, it's going to inspire all of us. And that was uh, a few weeks before uh, they really started uh, speaking up and mm-hmm. organizing the first march. Young people really are our hope for the future. And I truly believe that. We, we have uh, millions and millions of people, young people coming up who really, really you know, want to make a difference and improve the world. And I know my generation, most of the people I know have done what we can, but let's face it, the world's a mess and we, we need new energy to kind of carry us forward through this turbulent cycle. I, I was uh, out several weekends ago with a dear friend who had a very difficult childhood, uh, years and years of difficulties. And this now is a successful guy, a strong business leader, strong in his marriage, deep in his faith. And he was saying to me, man, I hope my daughter doesn't have to go through anything that I went through when I was a kid. And I was thinking to myself, man, I'm looking at a man who is compassionate, who is cruel-centric, who is aware and alive, specifically because of what he went through as a child. So I could kind of ask two questions around this. Number one is why do we try to protect our kids from skinning their knee continuously? But I'll leave that one for later. My question to you though, I think is this, why do you think it is from difficulties and tragedies that we seem to grow and expand uh, on who we become? Well, you know, I think that's, you know, I think that's one of the, the uh, most profound questions, you know, we face as human beings is, um, you know, or is this going to uh, completely destroy us forever, or are we somehow going to make our way through this and and discover something about life that we didn't know before? You know, unfortunately, a sudden tragedy like a, a school shooting, um, uh, a, a mass casualty event like somebody driving a truck into a crowd or a volcano or an earthquake, um, a hurricane, um, they they do rip away the fabric of what we thought normal was, and we we have to find a way of balancing, you know, in the middle of chaos and emotional chaos for 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 some time. I mean, it it doesn't you know it doesn't resolve. You can't you can't swipe it away. You know, you can swipe it away when you see it on your screen, but when it happens to you in real life in real time, you can't change the channel. And so the profound question is is how at a certain point. We, we, we are out of shock and the wound is beginning to heal sufficiently so that we can start to think about, you know, next week because maybe for the first year, year and a half, you can only think about how you're going to get through the day. And at that point, when, when the future begins to open up just a little bit, you have this little window where you say, okay, I, I think I'm, I think I'm going to make it through till Friday. Um, you know, where do I want mm-hmm. to be next week? You know, is it possible to think about that? Um, you know, and that's the point where we can begin to uh, discover strengths and resources and resilience and uh, com- compassion and the, the, a, a kind of enlarged capacity to connect with people as a result of what we've been through. But it can be very, very painful. You've endured the pain through your eyes, through your senses, what you've seen around you, what you've researched, who you've helped. And uh, recently, uh, in your own hometown, uh, talk about Hurricane Sandy. I uh, sometimes like to uh, joke 
kind of half joke that uh, the night of the storm was October 29th, 2012. The night of the storm was like the first scene in a disaster movie. And, you know, after that opening scene um, and after the floodwaters receded because the town's sewer pump broke during the storm, so everything, there was raw sewage over everything and and, uh, all of the homes and gardens and everything were uh, covered with bacteria and were toxic and the water supply was contaminated and uh, there was no electricity and there was no cell phone service um, and Tom Cruise wasn't going to come and rescue us. Uh, It was, um, you know, I can't even begin to describe it. It's like you're, you're just you're stripped down to your core, and you're thinking about survival in like ten to fifteen second increments. It's like uh, you know, do I have something to cover my feet? You know, when I mm-hmm. walk through the slime, uh, if I uh, put down the, you know, if if I um, want to go, you know, pick up the, you know, where where are the antibacterial wipes? Um, and if I walk, you know, from here to there, um, how many of them am I going to have to use? Uh, what happens when I run out? Um, where am I going to go to the bathroom because everything was completely contaminated? Uh, what do we do if this, what do we, if every moment has got these like, like micro decisions that you have to make that concern your survival. You know, what am I going to do when I run out of tuna fish? Um, mm-hmm. Fortunately, because the, uh, the everything was contaminated with sewage, I had to leave, and I and there was no electricity, so um, I, I became a FEMA refugee for a month, and um, I think by the time the power came back, I had been to my brother's place, my kid's place. Um, I'd slept in three different friends' houses, and I was living in somebody's basement in Brooklyn so that I could take the subway to work. And then finally, around Thanksgiving, the power came back, and uh, I went back to uh, Long Beach to a family member's apartment um, because I was now facing major decisions about mm-hmm. what to do with, with the property, which had been my home for nearly 20 years. And um, it was just, you know, it was just a staggering number of, uh, it's like you have to make critical survival decisions when you are in a state of acute stress, which means that it's very hard to focus, it's very hard to concentrate, you know, your body's kind of vibrating or shaking from the shock, um, at least for a few months, for some people it goes on longer. Um, you have little appetite or else you can't stop eating. Uh, you can't really sleep well. Um, you, you kind of, you, you're in a state of hypervigilance. You know, if there's a, somebody drops something, you feel like you're going to jump out of your skin. There's a sudden loud noise and it's, it's very uncomfortable. And yet everything that you thought was normal is not there anymore. I mean, you know, the post office is shuttered. Um, you know, the, the, um, the coffee shop used to go to is like all boarded up. Uh, the trains aren't running. I mean, it's, it, you know, it is like a disaster movie. Mm-hmm. And as I walked around town and I saw people's faces, they were, they were just, they, they were, they were faces of fear and rage, you know, all together, a combination of, of both emotions just, you know, kind of staring out at me. And I felt like every person I was looking at a mirror of myself. And so I knew that, I wasn't able to help people with sheetrock or, you know, kind of heavy construction lifting, but because of my work with the kids after 9-11, I knew how to do emotional, heavy emotional lifting. So I spoke to uh, someone at City Hall who uh, gave me the courtroom, and we started a a long-term program 
for people who were in the state of shock and acute stress to kind of develop uh, share resources and to come together in a safe place to talk about what this uh, horrible experience was like as we all went forward together. Well, and that program, that program lasted four years. And people are still struggling because of the financial trauma that happens after a natural catastrophe, which nobody speaks about. Right. But, uh, that, that's, I wrote a special chapter because uh, when I go home, uh, I, can, I can see and hear and feel what people are still going through six years later. And I think the cynics among us are saying, you know, gosh, you live through it. Come on, get on with it. The insurance will show up or you can move. And what I would say to them, and I'm sure you can add on to it, is in 1987, uh, your host, John O'Leary, was involved in a house fire, nearly lost his life. Tragic circumstances, five months in the hospital and everything that follows that. Incredibly painful for our family. 20 years later, my mom and dad lost their house a second time in a fire. They lost everything. They didn't lose a child, but they lost everything else. And still to this day, we're dealing with that. I mean, we've moved on. We've rebuilt. The house is back. Family dinners are hosted there. Life has returned. But there's still a piece of our maybe innocence or our who we thought we were that is, is still gone. So when you hear that, whether it's Sandy or the O'Leary fires or various hurricanes, fires, mudslides, how do you respond and how do you give people hope looking forward? You know, you just touched on something really important. And uh, I talk about at the beginning of the book, I call them the three elephants in the room. And they're three cycles of loss that you go through when you don't go back to who you were before. And uh, that could be an injury, it could be uh, a car accident, it could be a bankruptcy, um, it could be you know, any, any type of, of tragic event. Uh, you experience first a loss of control, you lose control of your physical environment. Uh, when you lose control of, uh, of your home uh, to a disaster, whether it's a fire, whether it's a natural disaster, um, that is extremely unsettling and very, very ungrounding. And then after that, we have the loss of safety. And you start to feel, you know, like, what if it happens again? You become emotionally fragile. Um, you may, you know, you may have nightmares that come back sometimes. Uh, it can come back years later when you thought that uh, everything was resolved. Um, a, a, a traumatic event, it's like dropping a glass. And when you pick the glass up, there's a crack in the glass. And it can still hold water. Like you said, you can still, the house still holds your family. Your family can go there and be together and have dinners and celebrate together. But the crack in the glass is always there. And that's, that's the, the shared wound of having gone through this tragedy together. And the third loss, or the third elephant, I call it the loss of identity. And, um, and that's, that's, I think, a piece of what you're talking about. It's, yes, we have this new home, but we're not exactly who we were as we were before when we were together in the old home. And there's a, like, a, like, who am I? Who are we now? Um, in the case of uh, Hurricane Sandy, uh, I lived in a community where, um, honestly, I never had to, I'd lock, my, I'd lock the door at night. You know, but if I forgot, it was no big deal. Mm -hmm. You could drive into town, and there aren't too many places in the world. I'd never lived any place where you could just leave your car unlocked if you were running, you know, a simple local errand. And as soon as right after the storm hit, 
course, that changed because suddenly you had people roaming around from you know, different parts of the country, from different neighborhoods. There were construction crews, and um, there was there, the, the community with a lot of people had evacuated after the storm, so there a lot of houses were empty, and there were targets now for burglars and um, you know, things that happen in most uh, most actually most communities around the world when you find deserted properties or, you know, deserted uh, homes. That's right. But the community, uh, people who would come to the, uh, to the groups in the courtroom would talk about that loss of identity, the feeling that, you know, it wasn't the old community where you could live with your door unlocked, that we had lost something with that, with that sense of safety and that it affected our communal sense of identity. And so, that's something that um, it's not, you know, it, it's not like you're living in fear that, you know, somebody's going to break down your door. It's not, you know, in any way that level. But, but suddenly you have to be vigilant and you have to be cautious and you have to look over your shoulder and you have to be street smart. Um, there's a loss of that sense of, of innocence and safety that we had before. That's a large elephant. When we go through these storms, when we weather these challenges, you have given us a template that I think we can leverage and utilize called The Five Gifts. It came out in April. The subtitle is Discovering Hope, Healing, and Strength When Disaster Strikes. When we read that book, what, what do you hope that your readers might receive? Well, I think a, a couple of things. I'd like people to know that um, if you open the book, and people have been telling me that this this actually works, and I guess this was one of my... Uh, I guess secret goals as an author that I wanted to write a book that if if you were having a tough moment or a tough day, you could open the book at random and something will pop out at you that is meaningful and helpful. Um, I would like people to uh, just read it and find you know if you find one emotional first aid tool that you can incorporate into what you do to stay calm if you're in another storm or you're in um, you know a, a panicked uh, state for any reason whatsoever then you can use these tools that work within seconds they're very very quick um, I think that what I'd also like people to do to know is that um, the five gifts which are humility patience empathy forgiveness and growth that these five gifts, uh, as you read about how other people in uh, other catastrophic events ranging from the uh, tsunami in Thailand to the Rwandan genocide to a veteran who uh, served uh, five tours in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, to somebody who uh, was, uh, has recovered uh, to uh, recovered from a traumatic brain injury, that all of these people have something inspiring to offer uh, that 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 correspond to or that offer their account of how each of these five gifts have helped them not just to survive but to basically get to a place of growth which is the fifth gift. And, and with the gift of growth, we can look back and we can say, you know, even though I would not have wanted to experience that, even though I would never wish it on anybody else, um, I still have to be thankful and appreciative because I wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't gone through that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all right, my friend. Well, we, we could spend all day at the feet of a, of a teacher learning from your experiences and the research that you've done, the the processes that you've taught and been part of. I want to switch gears, though, into seven questions that we have asked every guest 
who has ever been on the Live Inspired podcast. And it begins always with question number one, which is, Dr. Laurie Nadell, what is the best book that you have ever read? The best book I've ever read was Catcher in the Rye by G.D. Salinger. I think that was, that. it's tied with Catch-22, but I think those two, which were kind of the seminal books of the 60s, um, and, and what I love about them is that both characters are um, authentic, and uh, and and they think in questions. You know, mm-hmm. they they question authority, and I think that that's uh, that's a trait that uh, I I continue to admire and and hope I never hope I never stop questioning. I think it's I think it's the gift you bring to the rest of us. Thank what you. what is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a child, which you wish you still exhibited as brightly today? Wow, that's that's a that's a good one. Um, I think I was very frightened and overwhelmed as a child, um, so I, I I'm not really uh, trying to think of a trait that I had as a kid. I I guess you know I, I was an excellent uh, creative writer. I, I I made up stories, and I recently met someone at a high school reunion, a fiftieth high school reunion. And all I could talk about was, why didn't you become a writer like Stephen King? He used to write great stories. I said, yeah, fourth grade. <laughs> Come on. So I guess I would say, yeah, that, that my imagination is probably kind of uh, te- tempered uh, by reality and has been tempered by the real world. And so I, guess I would like to have a, a more active imagination. Well, it's funny you say that because I, I actually think you teach us to see outside of what the, you know, quote unquote, the, the real world is to see what's really going on and what ultimately really matters. So I, I, think, I, think, I think that's true. It's a different kind of imagination from just right. making up a story or a fantasy. Well, th- this one is, uh, I think, a question that many of our listeners and, and guests have to really imagine, but you're going you're gonna to know this one right away because you lived through it. If your house caught fire or, in your case, flooded, and all living things were out, and you had an opportunity to run in and grab just one item, what would you grab? Well, I, I would have grabbed my cat, and I did. That was the first thing that I grabbed. Um, if I had it to it over again with Hurricane Sandy, I would have grabbed my uh, the original uh, edition of The Wizard of Oz, which I was uh, saving for my uh, grandchildren if I ever had them, and uh, I, I would have I would have run in and save that book because all of those beautiful uh, books from my childhood that I've mm-hmm. been saving were destroyed. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that one I would have missed. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who would you want to be visiting with? Uh, that's an excellent uh, question. Who would I want to be sitting on a bench with? I would have to say Dan Rather, and I'm I'm very uh, very fortunate and privileged. Dan has been my uh, mentor. He's encouraged me to write. Uh, he's been a, a a big believer and supporter of this book and of mm-hmm. all the books that I've written. Uh, he was I interviewed him for Sixth Sense. He was kind enough to endorse that book. Although I think you know I was surprised actually that he that he. Uh, was uh, comfortable doing that at that time because it was a very out there kind of a subject. But uh, I'm always fascinated by uh, what Dan has to say about uh, about where we are now in America as compared to uh, all of the uh, movements and cycles and uh, um, 
the the changes that he's seen in the course of his lifetime. He's 80, 86 now, and all of the changes that he's seen in his long career as a journalist. And what can we learn from that so that we can move forward as a uh, as a kinder and and more empathetic people? So, what would Dan or someone else? Uh... What is the best advice that you've ever received from a guy like Dan Rathers or someone else that you respect? Um, the best advice I've ever received. Hmm, that's I'm, I'm kind of drawing a black blank. Uh, can we can we cycle back to that We're one? We're going to cycle back to that one. You have two okay. more before we cycle back. Okay. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Um, I would tell my 20-year-old self uh, to calm down a little bit. Uh, <laughs> um, I was definitely wild, and uh, and I wouldn't I wouldn't want to you know clip her wings or or put any put the brakes on. But uh, I I think that you know I have a lot of people who come into uh, my my practice um, for therapy in their mid to late 20s because what we learn in our mid to late 20s is that the rules of life that we had to learn or model in order to get through childhood and um, some of the craziness of the family culture, the rules that we that we learn to kind of survive, you know, and and function within that environment don't always apply to the world at large. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's what I would uh, tell my twenty year old self. Um, the world is is very different when you actually get out there and have to make your way in it. So, um, you know, be careful, but uh, be open mm. to the adventures that will come. Be careful, but stay bold. That's awesome. It has been said uh, that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Lori Nadell, how would you want your one sentence to read? She was a great mom and a great friend. Great mom, great friend. And now we come back to great advice. Final question for you today, my friend. What is the best advice you've ever received? I have to say that Dan uh, always gives me great advice. And the advice that he's been giving me for years is just keep writing. Well, Laurie Nadell, keep writing. Thank you for being a great mom, a great friend, a great guest, a great writer, a great leader, and a great teacher. We've been honored to have you on our show. Thank you. The honor is mine, John. Thank you so much for your work. My friends, that is Dr. Laurie Nadell. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. My friends, I want to take a quick moment to give you a special invitation. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, what would you say to joining me live once a month? And not just joining me, but hundreds of other like-minded Live Inspired community members. And what if you could do it from the comfort of your own home? My friends, Live Inspired in studio with John O'Leary is exactly this, a gathering of our Live Inspired community members once a month for a live inspirational webcast. Let's do life together. Registration for in-studio only happens twice a year. And here's a secret, it's opening soon. Don't miss it. Sign up right now. Be one of the very first to know when Live Inspired in-studio registration opens. You can go right now, check it out. It's at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio. One more time, it's johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio.